listening to a podcast from The National. How we assess risk has become a far more complex question in recent years, as disruption from technology, politics and conflict change the dynamics across industries across the world. You're listening to an episode of the Business Extra podcast coming from the National's Abu Dhabi newsroom. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. To get a different perspective on risk, I spoke to Stuart Jones, the co-founder and chief executive officer of Sigma Ratings. Now, they use a model based on operational and governance factors to assess risk of institutions, companies, and countries. He has some findings on the Middle East, which are quite interesting. I spoke to him. Stuart, thanks so much for joining us down in Abu Dhabi. I know you've got a busy schedule while you're here in the UAE. Uh, You've got a very exciting project going on at the moment called Sigma Ratings. Uh, You founded the company. Uh, You've got a very deep background, not just in this region, but finance, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But but maybe you can start off by just giving me an idea of what what does Sigma do? It's a non-ratings ratings agency. Yeah. But what does non-ratings mean? Yeah, it's a little little complicated, but let me demystify that a bit. And first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be back in the capital, back in Abu Dhabi, um, and back uh, talking to folks at the National. This place is near and dear to my heart. when, when we talk about Sigma Ratings, Sigma Ratings is a, is a non-credit rating agency. And so what we're looking at specifically is we're looking at the compliance and the governance risk of a company. Um, whereas a traditional credit rating agency like an S&P or a Moody's or Fitch is looking at the credit worthiness, the ability for an entity to repay, we're looking at the other side, the conduct risk, the compliance risk, the governance risk, which are some of the most important issues that global companies are looking for when trying to establish business relationships in emerging and frontier markets. It's concise. I get it. And and I think there have been other kinds of agencies that have looked at different criteria like sustainability, like the environment. Um, but this, this, this is something that's quite new, looking at sort of the operational risk of a, of a business. Um, now, if we go back 10 years, financial crisis, a lot of criticism for the traditional ratings agencies like Fitch, like S&P, as you mentioned, um, Moody's, uh, that they were too close to their subjects, um, that there was perhaps uh, not enough objectivity, uh, that, that it had led to, you know, p- perhaps not necessarily the straightforward risk profiling of financial products of institutions. By looking at the operational side, is that somewhat an evolution for the way companies and products are actually analyzed and rated? Yeah, I think you've, I think you've nailed it. I think that we are um, our thesis is that we're at the edge of a wave of change that's coming around transparency. When you look at things like ESG and you look at the way that millennials are investing, you look at the dollars that are behind uh, these sorts of issues. ESG, sir? E- e- environmental sustainability right. and governance. Um, ab- absolutely billions and billions of dollars are now being applied to that. We have um, a client that we work with that is a specialist in ESG and their clients um, when they come in, will not even drink from a plastic bottle because they're so environmentally conscious. These sort of issues are, are huge. When we look at what, what Sigma is doing specifically around conduct and operational risk, I do think it's an evolution, but I think it fits into that transparency narrative where people now can know more than they could have ever known before. I think there are a lot of statistics floating around about how there's been more data created in the last two years than in all of, than in all of human history. Mm-hmm. I think that trend is going to continue. I think the expectation around transparency is 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 really there, not only from how 
corporations work with each other, about how investors price and understand where they want to be with um, with entities in emerging and frontier markets. So yeah, I think it is an evolution, and I think that that when you talk to um, big asset managers, when you talk to global banks, we have a partnership with Barclays, for example. Uh, it's not just understanding the ability of a company to repay. It's really understanding the operations of that entity, who's running that entity, who owns that entity. Getting real answers around those questions is, is, is e- even in an age of transparency, still quite difficult. And by making that available, we're making the opportunity to connect people in a way that, that, that didn't exist before possible because now they can really understand each other much better. And uh, you mentioned governance and, and understanding the, the, the risks associated with who owns the business, who's behind it, who's running it. And these things obviously are important and hard to get. You know, the, this region isn't always the most transparent when it comes to these things. Um, but I guess uh, from your selling point, when you're you're going to, 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 ser- to provide your services, with a straight ratings agency, you can understand, okay, I need this rating. And, and companies don't always want a rating, right? So, right? so at some point they say, okay, I'm going to seek a rating because it's going to help me with my debt. It's exactly. going to help me with my investors. It's going to help me have a cheaper cost of capital. Exactly. Is that, is that your also what your service is going to provide or is there something else? Well, so, so yeah, that's a great point. So, so we, we ultimately see what we're doing being pri- uh, tied to price. I think that that will take time. Uh, but I think when you... Uh, get out and talk to the rating agencies, which we have. Um, one of the rating agencies told me recently that they could think of a couple hundred examples of companies in higher risk jurisdictions that if they had a better sense of the conduct risk of that entity, could see a one to two notch increase in their credit rating, which translates to real dollars. So that you could almost fill a gap even between the ratings agencies and the institutions and governments and companies that they are rating. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we could. And I think that, that we could build in sort of part of what we're doing into the formal rating process as it exists now. But I also think it can be a standalone. I think that companies need to be putting dollars toward explaining uh, to the world what they're doing around compliance, what they're doing around governance, what they're doing around financial crime, uh, and how they're managing that specifically. And until Sigma ratings, there wasn't really a good way to message that. You could go and get an audit from a big four agency, you could do it yourself, but it wasn't standardized. And yeah. It was very difficult to explain to an international audience, hey, I'm really good at this. You can look at me from the perspective of the jurisdiction that I'm headquartered in or the jurisdictions that I operate in, but you shouldn't evaluate me on that jurisdiction alone. You should evaluate me on my attention to controls mm. and my effectiveness around those controls. And so how you sort of get at that and how you get at that in a standardized and normalized way really hasn't existed before, which is the market need that we're trying to solve. So what's your criteria when you're assessing risk? So when we're assessing risk, we're looking at a, a whole bunch of things. We're, we're starting with trying to understand the, the geographic risk. We've built our own proprietary dynamic risk model. We're looking at ownership. We're looking at products and services. We're looking at transparency overall. Uh, how much information do you make available? Is it easy to find? We look at reputation, um, and we look at the operations of an entity. Are you making money? Are you losing money? Are you up and down? Is there consistency? But we also look at the control function within an entity. Um, How robust are your controls? How seasoned uh, is your compliance team? Are you uh, prioritizing compliance and risk management as part of your operations? Those are the sort of things on the control side that we look at. And when you put the risk and the controls together, that's when you get to a rating which is a numeric score that we translate into a letter. 
uh, much like a credit rating. Right. So the highest would be AAA and the worst would be uh, C, which would be deficient. And without giving away your secret source, I mean, why are you able to get the data f- to come up with this rating that a Fitch or a Moody's or a, an S&P wouldn't be able to? That's a great. That's a great point. I don't. I. I think it's not that that they couldn't do it. I think that they're not specialized to go and look at control and risk information. They're specialized to go and look at the balance sheet and the repayment ability of an entity. I think when you, when we talk about getting additional data, we've built a, a, a an AI model that is able to pull all of that information that I described on the risk side into a database and to analyze it and to assign this dynamic score. When we talk about the control side, though, that does require an entity to work with us. The control information for a bank or for a corporate in the GCC or anywhere in the world, in America for for that matter, is not fully in the open. So what we do is we work with those entities to opt into our platform to provide additional control information so that we understand the risk and we understand the control. In return for that, we give them ratings. And why would they do that? Why would they open up to you? I, I guess is, is, is this the, the real n- yeah. nut, nut here, right? Yeah. To understand so, that. Yeah. So look, we're early in this. We think that we're ahead of the trend. Um, but the, the financial institutions that are opting in now, they are leaders in their market. They see a rating as a way to differentiate. Uh, they see a rating as a way to attract investors. They see it as a way to um, solidify their correspondent banking relationships in London and New York and around the world. Um, and they see they see it as a way to get a competitive business advantage. If you're looking at um, the first rating client we had, for example, which is a bank in Malta, they're the only bank in Malta that has a rating. And if you look at all of the banks in Malta, from the outside looking in, you're going to have more comfort in an institution that's had an independent third party like Sigma come in and assess them. Um, I think an important part too about what we do is we don't we do not do any consulting. We're not there to consult, we're there to simply rate, which allows us to be even more independent than someone else that might come in and wanna sell you some additional services. And we're very, we're very you know, standing pat um, on that. We've been asked to do a number of consulting engagements and that's not, that's not at all what we wanna do, that's not our model. So when it comes to some of the the trends, if you like, that that are happening, so I think of, of growing cyber risk, I think of you know growing geopolitical risks. Um, the these things might come into play uh, when uh, a, a, a traditional ratings agency is doing their assessment, the impact of trade and protectionism, um, you know, the, the climate change, uh, technology shifts. Um, for example, uh, you know, the, the, there's a a shift from LIBOR as a benchmark for interest rates in 2021. It's kind of a big impact for banks. Do these things come into what you're what you're rating, or is it something? Are these not necessarily directly impacting your assessments? So, so I think if you looked at uh, a Sigma rating and you compared it to an S and P, Moody's, or Fitch rating, 99% of it would be different. The only thing that would be the same is the name of the entity and the address. All of the underlying data, all of the underlying observations, all of the underlying uh, metrics that would go into how we would get to a rating would be completely and fundamentally different. I do think there is some overlap when we start to talk about geopolitical risk. Geopolitical risk is something that we look at in our country risk model, and it's certainly something that the rating agencies look at because it's potentially tied to default, it's, it's tied to um, a lack of faith in a market. We've seen ratings change um, in Argentina. Uh, for example, on the national level as a result of, of political uncertainty right now and, and in other parts of the world. But beyond that, we don't really factor in, we're not factoring in LIBOR changes, we're not factoring in MIFID II, we're not factoring in 
any of those sorts of things. We're looking very, very specifically at compliance risk and very specifically at governance risk. Um, those are the, the areas that, that you would see in one of our reports. And, and I think, and I think that, that your listeners would see our report as an addition that adds much more clarity that would go alongside a credit rating. More Business Extra in just a moment, but first allow me to tell you about The National's other podcasts. Beyond the Headlines takes a deeper dive into the biggest news from the week with a distinct Middle Eastern point of view. And Extra Time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on Apple Podcasts or find us as always at thenational.ae. This is the Business Extra podcast. You're listening to me, Mustafa Al-Rawi. I'm happy to say with me is Stuart Jones, the co-founder and chief executive officer of Sigma Ratings. We've been talking about a new approach uh, to uh, rating institutions and companies um, globally. But, you know, Stuart's here in this region um, because he's also got a view on this region. So we were talking before the just before about how you, you perhaps – your, your criteria for assessing a company operational risk, conduct risk, governance mm-hmm. is 99% different from what a traditional credit ratings agency might do. You're a non-credit ratings agency. That's right. Um, so what about this region? Do you differ on this region, on your view, compared to some more the traditional uh, analysts and, and, and agencies? I, look, I think I do. I think that part of that is because I lived here, um, I have a special place for this region. I think that it is often sort of emotional bias. Uh, there's probably emotional bias, which our engineers would say has been engineered out of our scores. Um, they, I don't go anywhere near that. I let the algorithm say what the algorithm says. But I think that the, the numbers and the facts speak for themselves. When you look at the Middle East and you compare it to the other regions that we've been focused on initially, which include Africa and Latin America, the Middle East is um, one of the most transparent of those three um, and fundamentally more transparent than Latin America. Latin America, we have a hard time finding a lot of documents, including things that are normally provided like the Wolfsburg report. If you look at banks in the UAE, I think it's 40, 50 percent of the financial institutions would make a Wolfsburg report public on their website. In Mexico, it's less than 5 percent. And for the uninitiated, a Wolfsburg report is? So a Wolfsburg report is, uh, is, is something that was put together by a group of large financial institutions, which helps them understand the control environment of an institution. Um, it's a standardized form that every bank in the world pretty much fills out and makes available. Some of them make it available on a bilateral basis, but most of them make it available on their website. And it tells you things like who uh, owns the institution, what controls the institution has in place, who the head of compliance is, whether or not they do independent testing. Things that you would generally want to know are contained in a Wolfsburg report. And from a transparency perspective, if I were a shareholder or I were an investor, that would be something I would be looking for, particularly on a bank in the Middle East or a bank in, in Latin America, is what is happening in that institution around financial crime compliance. And so the things that I would expect to see would be an AML attestation, anti-money laundering attestation. I would be looking to see any policies or procedures or statements uh, around anti-money laundering. I would be looking for a Wolfsburg report. And I would be looking for some granularity in the annual report as well around what that entity is doing. And so when we say transparency, that's one of the things we're looking at. I think, I think, you know, from a, from a risk perspective as well, I think that people uh, do have certain bias against the region. I, I have uh, noticed in many conversations that uh, people in America specifically, I think, I think 90% of Americans don't have a passport 
don't necessarily understand the difference between the GCC and the rest of the region. Um, I think sophisticated investors certainly certainly know that difference. However, I will tell you that that I hosted a group of uh, investors from large pension funds when I was the U.S. Treasury attaché that came out to the region, and their wives had uh, named this the Widowmaker Tour because they were coming out to the Middle East as we took breakfast in the Emirates Palace. And, and I said, do you still feel that way? And they said, uh, actually, no, but we're not going to tell our wives that. We want to come back. <laughs> so, so I think that this, this, this perception versus reality thing is very different. Take Saudi Arabia, for example. Saudi Arabia is equal in size to Argentina. Um, it's a G20 member like Argentina. But on our risk model, it's actually a much safer place than Argentina. Uh, from a financial crime compliance perspective. And I guess, you know, the UAE in particular, uh, it's got quite robust um, regulation, uh, quite robust requirements. If we're talking about the banking sector, there's a lot of rules. They're implementing, is it we're, we're at Basel three? I was, yeah. <laughs> which, which Basel we're at. Yeah. Um, but we're there and, and they have to apply that. And, you know, they have to, to be at a global level. The UAE wants to be, you know, a top 10 nation. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- quite rightly, as you point out, the documentation will be available if it should be available. Mm-hmm. But then just because you see the, f- the, the data, you, that doesn't always tell you what that means. Right. So are you able to contextualize the, this information that you're receiving? Yeah. So, you know, look, uh, to, the, to the point about the UAE, I'd say that the UAE is doing a, a phenomenal job of, of trying to get the good points out. I think that there are a number of changes underway within the central bank. Uh, one example is last year, every bank was asked to do an independent review, which they did, and they made available to the central bank. And that was done in concert with the UAE Bankers Federation, which is where I was speaking today, was at one of their events. They're doing the same thing now with money service businesses, which is a positive step. The UAE is going to be reviewed by the Financial Action Task Force, which is a global review body next year. Uh, and they're preparing for that. So I think the UAE is taking some some really good steps toward raising the stakes and raising itself on sort of a league table of countries that are very active in this space. But as you say, um, does the, the information that you're provided stack up in terms of effectiveness? And I think that's one of the things that we really want to look at with our rating is it's very easy to understand the risk uh, in terms of where you're doing business, who you're doing business with. But what we look for when we do the the rating is we start to look to effectiveness. What is the culture within the entity? What are the controls within the entity? What is the strategy of the entity? Um, Has it been through an M&A? Really digging into that granularity is where we find um, the truth. Um, And and the truth is really what uh, builds trust, and building trust is what fosters business relationships. At the end of the day, banking is a trust business, and banking is a partnership business. We're just helping it facilitate and enable that. And your view of GCC banks, what, I mean, how do you rate them? I, look, we, 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 we've rated all of them. Uh, we've risk rated all of them, and they will all be available on our platform, which launches on July 2nd in beta form. Um, I think, look, broadly speaking, I think they're, they're doing a good job of, of, of upping themselves, but I think that there's a lot of work uh, yet to do around effectiveness. I think there's a lot of work yet to do around data quality, um, I think that there is a lot of work to do uh, around how they message. I think that, that, that they're not all of the same. There, there are some that are doing a really good job, and there are some that, that need, to, need to up their standards. But I think the, the ones that are doing really well are in a great position to help bring the rest along. And I think as the rest come along, messaging that to the international community is key. 
I think I think when we when we think about banks, banks are very competitive, but we also have to think about nations and nations being very competitive. All of the nations of the world are trying to climb the ladder. And the UAE is is a competitive nation. The UAE, as you said, wants to be a top 10 nation. And so I think collectively, the more that the, the UAE Bankers Federation and the financial institutions here message how they're different, why they're different, the steps and investments that they're taking to be different, the better off the country and the better off the financial institutions uh, and, the, and the market overall will be. And how do the GCC banks compare to European institutions, US institutions, according to your criteria? So I think according to our criteria, it would it really depends on a case by case basis where um, they're doing business and where they're um, where they're sort of focused from a strategy perspective. If you take a bank in UAE that is doing retail banking um, and offering some small corporate banking, um, they would compare you know very similarly to uh, the U.S. Um, but if you have an institution that is opening branches and opening subsidiaries and opening relationships in higher risk markets all around the region, then the risk of that institution is, is, is net-net going to be higher. And so what we would look for in that situation is evidence of controls to manage that risk. You've taken a business decision to operate in higher risk jurisdictions, which is fine, but you also have to match that with the right type of controls, the right types of personnel, the right types of training to manage that risk and put your institution in a strong position. Stuart, you've taken an interesting route uh, <laughs> to find yourself in this studio with us. Um, you mentioned earlier, you briefly mentioned that you were at the U.S. Department of Treasury, um, but you were there for quite a while, and, and you spent a lot of time in this region. Um, you you looked into these these idea of controls. I mean, you mentioned money laundering, but also terror financing. Um, you know, all kinds of, of of the the issues du jour, shall we say? Um, you know, you were you were on top of that. So as you were shuttling around the, the Gulf, the Middle East, talking to governments, uh, speaking to the leadership. I mean, you know, w- what kind of experience was that, you know, representing the Treasury here? Oh, it was unbelievable. You know, but, but it actually started uh, in Afghanistan. So, so I was first um, detailed to Kabul for two years, and that is uh, a whole nother level. When was that? That would have been 2008 to 2010. So uh, it, a long route indeed to end up in this studio, but the, the, the starting point being Afghanistan and, and Afghanistan being uh, an incredible eye-opener in terms of um, working for two different administrations, both the Bush administration and the Obama administration, and working on everything from combating illicit finance to trying to figure out how Afghanistan would pay its own balance going forward, uh, something that I think is still being worked out. Yep. But then coming here to the to the Middle East was was very different um, to represent Treasury here because here we're talking about real economies. Here we're talking about G20 countries. Here we're talking about um, institutions um, and countries that move markets. So uh, it was it was a real eye opener coming here. I think the first meeting I had here was with uh, His Excellency Sultan Al Sawadi, who was the former central bank governor. Um, and I used to joke that that my children would come back uh, as Treasury attache one day to the UAE and, and uh, His Excellency the governor would still be in position. At the time, he was the longest serving uh, central bank governor. But he he has since uh, stepped down and moved on. Um, but that was where things started in the Middle East for me. We had a very great working relationship with uh, the UAE when I was in Treasury. Same with, with Saudi and same across uh, the GCC. I think you know, I haven't met a banker personally, and I haven't met a government personally that's not trying to do the right thing. It's the question of how do we get better? 
at protecting the integrity of the financial system here? How do we get better at information sharing? How do we get better at helping raise standards together? That was the mission that I had here, and, and I'm proud to say that it's advanced significantly since I was Treasury Attaché. I'm in touch with, with my successors, and, and I'm, I'm jealous that, that now they sort of hold the opportunity to advance the ball on this. But now I'm in a position to, to help advance it from a different vantage sure. point, and I'm excited about that. So, I mean, as a, an official from the Treasury Department versus a State Department diplomat, mm. do you, are they, when, you, when you call and say, I'm coming to see you, are there people more nervous? they might do with a straight diplomat because the Treasury Department is, you know, it's got a reputation, right, for being yeah. tough. I mean, when they call, yeah. you, you're worried, right? Yeah, so, 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 I, so I, I, never, I never didn't get a meeting when I asked for it out <laughs> here. And uh, uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't because they wanted to see me. It was because they wanted to make sure there wasn't an issue. Right. But, but I had a, a very good working relationship, not only with the government, with the sovereign wealth funds uh, here in Abu Dhabi and in, in Dubai, uh, and in Saudi and, and other places, but a very good working relationship with the banks. I was I was really um, impressed with how open they were to discuss, how open they were to um, hear our perspective, uh, and and try to stay on the right side of a, a very fast moving ball in terms of what is and is not allowed uh, under U.S. law. Um, and and the same was true, quite frankly, with many of the money service businesses here. The money service businesses in the UAE have been under a lot of pressure, and, and we did a lot with Treasury to try to shine a light on the, the, the good work that they're doing. There's a, a thing called the Foreign Exchange Remittance Group, or the FERG, um, which is setting standards and trying to, to, to raise uh, the capacity of the MSBs here so that they can provide a very needed service, which is remittance back to, to, to countries around the world. So, so that, that experience, though, was, was fantastic. I was humbled by it. My eyes were opened by it. There's a lot of work that needs to be done out here, um, but a lot of work has been done too. And that experience, you know, at Treasury in this region, the, what you've just been describing, w- would you call that sort of a natural springboard to to founding Sigma mm. and and looking at sort of from an analysis point of view, conduct risks? Um, you know, is, is was it? Do you say, you know, what I'm going to go set up a company so I can do this all the time? And be in charge was, was yeah, that the yeah. thinking? Well, well, but you know, be, being in charge is overrated. Uh, but but I, I would say that that when I was in government, uh, we used to talk a lot about how having some kind of standardized ratings around compliance would be very beneficial because I would have banks come to me, I would have MSBs come to me and say, "Hey, I'm doing everything right, but I can't get Citibank or J.P. Morgan or Standard Charter to work with me. What can I do?" And I thought to myself, if there was only a rating service that could um, validate from a third-party perspective what they were doing, it would help them. Um, I didn't do anything about it then. I actually left government and joined a big four consultancy here in the region. Um, that's where I really honed my skills of tearing down and building back up control functions. And, and then it was from there that I decided to actually go back to school uh, at MIT and learn something about technology and learn how we could take technology and apply it to solving that original problem of creating a standardized and normalized way of viewing risk. That's where I met my co-founder. Um, she, uh, Gabrielle Haddad, actually uh, Syrian origin, uh, at MIT. She had just won the, uh, she's a lawyer and had just won the AI uh, hackathon at MIT. And I said, I need that person on my team. And so I, I tried to convince her to join Sigma and, and she had her own ideas, but over time, 
I managed to get her on board with Sigma, and she actually just testified yesterday before the House Financial Services Committee on the work we're doing at Sigma. So a great partner, a great co-founder, um, and a great foundation to build a company around. But it, it took it took from from uh, sort of envisioning that this could be something that would be possible in Treasury to working through that whole life cycle of being a consultant, going back to school, and then uh, having the guts to go out and get in the arena and being on be an entrepreneur and try to change fundamentally the way that the international community looks at risk. This didn't exist before. A lot of people, when we go meet them, say, well, why? what is this? There, there, there hasn't been this. Well, there wasn't a credit rating agency until there was. There wasn't a way to certify that a building is environmentally friendly until there was. There wasn't a better business bureau until there was. There's a real need for this, and it probably wouldn't have happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's now. Stuart Jones, thanks so much for being with us. Mustafa, thank you. That was Stuart Jones, CEO of Sigma Ratings, giving us a very different perspective on how to assess risk in the region and perhaps a more optimistic outlook for institutions, companies and countries here. My colleague in London, Paul Peachy, he went up to Scotland to one of the projects that Abu Dhabi's Mazdar is involved in. He spoke to Badr Alamki, who is Mazdar's head of clean energy business. Up there in Scotland, they're testing a new technology that could have far-reaching consequences for the renewable sector. My name is Bader Alamki. I'm the executive director of clean energy business at Mazdar. We are here at Peterhead to witness the inauguration of Batwind. Batwind is uh, the world's first uh, integrated offshore wind farm with a storage solution. Uh, basically, this is a, a game changer for the industry. What is this connected to? So uh, Batwind is connected to Highwind. Highwind is the world's first floating offshore wind farm that was inaugurated uh, till end of last year. Uh, basically, there's five wind turbines uh, offshore of uh, Peterhead, about 30 kilometers into the sea. And uh, they are, uh, each turbine is six megawatt, making the wind farm capacity totaling 30 uh, megawatt. Uh, and then the electricity produced offshore is connected to the substation here onshore via subsea cable, and then connected to the grid where the consumers uh, benefit from green, clean, green energy. So this is a new advance in renewable energy production? Absolutely. There's two innovative uh, components to Batwind and Highwind. Batwind being the first floating uh, offshore wind turbine. Uh, this is unlocking more potential for offshore wind turbines uh, in areas whereby water depth exceeds uh, a cost-effective uh, limit. And then connecting that offshore wind farm with the battery solution, a smart battery solution, allows uh, the integrated uh, components of the project to become the first in the world uh, to prove the concept commercially. And again, this is a game changer for the industry. So what is the problem with wind power? Generally speaking, it's not uh, the challenge of wind power alone. It's, it's, uh, it's the challenge with renewables in general. Uh, renewables are uh, becoming more cost-effective. Uh, they are source, a clean source of uh, energy, uh, enabling access to electricity uh, across the globe. The challenge, though, is what we refer to in the industry is the intermittency, uh, meaning, uh, uh, for example, when the sun uh, uh, is out there, when then you are able to produce electricity, but when the sun sets, you are unable to, to produce. 
or during the production of the uh, the, the electricity from, from 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 sun for example there'll be elements of clouds passing by so the 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 uh, dischargeability of energy produced from renewables is intermittent it it, it fluctuates so when you have a, a smart solution such as batwind technology whereby uh, you can store that energy and dispatch it when the production from the sun is not there. So keeping the production constant and steady, making it more reliable, this is what uh, the, the, the challenge that the industry is facing. And once this is overcome, uh, we believe that the choice would be for renewables to be uh, more integrated to the way we produce electricity across the globe. Because the problem is, if there is a peak of electricity demand, in the middle of a World Cup football match when everybody puts the kettle on and the wind is not blowing, you cannot supply that energy. This is a, an attempt to solve that problem. Absolutely. And I think that's the, definitely uh, what uh, the, the industry is uh, going to experience moving forward is solutions such as Batwind to overcome uh, this very uh, same uh, challenge you've just described. One of the criticisms of renewable energy, particularly wind power, is that it is expensive or has been in the past, are we getting to a situation where it is becoming the cheaper or cheapest option of energy production? Uh, the cost of renewables, uh, generally speaking, wind, solar, have declined rapidly in the last uh, decade of, or so. Uh, for example, solar, uh, the cost of electricity have declined by a factor of 60%. And today you have uh, electricity coming from wind or solar becoming vo very cost effective uh, when compared with the alternative. The alternative could be a gas-fired power plant or, or a coal-fired or even a nuclear. Uh, today the business case for renewables is very solid. It's cost competitive given the scale of renewables that has been deployed and given also the technological evolution. Uh, the R&D that went behind uh, improving the wind turbines, the R&D that went behind improving the efficiency of the PV panels. So overall, uh, and also the stability of the regulation, regulatory framework was important for investment for investors such as Monster to come and invest and play an active role in developing renewable projects across the globe, and UK being one of the destinations that we are proudly to be uh, the only Middle Eastern based uh, company that has invested in this uh, sector here in the UK. This is uh, our fourth uh, investment and uh, we are we, certainly not going to be the last one. So uh, overall today the renewables are in good shape, uh, they are cost effective and uh, the uh, residual challenge we see is this intermittency uh, problem that we hope through initiatives such as this one with our strategic partner Equinor will be able to demonstrate uh, in effect, through the project, that it is possible to overcome the intimacy and do it in a way that is smart and intelligent. This is a small project. What is the broader implications if this is successful? This is certainly scalable. Uh, the supply chain exists. Uh, and uh, the, the, the implication is, is, is definitely one that is uh, promising uh, and uh, encouraging. I think we can uh, imagine a world whereby the penetration of renewables would increase by the, uh, f the success of this uh, initiative. We are not saying this is the only initiative out there, but we are saying this is the first uh, at scale 
in, in, in this sector, and we are proudly to, proud to be part of this undertaking with Equinor. Uh, Which places in the world could benefit from the technology that you're developing here, both the deep water technology and the storage? This, the the uh, energy storage solution that is uh, uh, demonstrated here can be applicable to uh, other forms of renewables, uh, PV or onshore wind, uh, so it's not limited only to offshore wind. And uh, this is a, a global uh, undertaking, so renewables, wherever they are, uh, would f are currently facing the intermittency challenge. So if this is proven and this is demonstrated at scale, uh, the success of this will be uh, possible to mimic it anywhere across the globe. What impact does this have on your bottom line? Well, part of the, uh, the, the, the novel aspect of this uh, undertaking is this is the battery storage, the battery management, uh, the storage management system uh, is, is a smart one. The algorithm is, is intelligent. It collects data when the grid requires energy, when, uh, when it is optimal to dispatch it. And as such, you will be able to uh, maximize the profitability of uh, our investment by dispatching it uh, and reducing the intermittency uh, uh, that the, the project base case had, had uh, assumed. Can you give me some indication of your broader investment plans? Master today has a portfolio uh, with a gross capacity of 3 gigawatts across the globe. Our appetite is to double that in the coming five years, and uh, it is definitely central to our growth ambition is to integrate this type of technologies where possible given the cost uh, evaluation of the project. So uh, definitely it's central to our growth and uh, we will implement it uh, uh, increasingly moving forward. And where are you seeking to put those projects? Middle East, uh, so here in Europe, uh, anywhere where the investment uh, business case and the regulatory framework allows us to implement it, we will consider it. That remains for me to thank uh, Paul Peachy in London, uh, Stuart Jones, CEO of Sigma Ratings, and you've been listening to the Business Extra podcast. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi. Please join us again next week. <laughs>